All right, hello everybody. Um, I'm extremely excited today to speak with Tom Windish. I've known Tom for a little while now, but actually never really asked him about his path and story. So this is a personal present to myself. Uh, Tom has been internationally recognized as one of the top agents in the world uh, for about 20, 25 years, um, and has been running the Windish Agency, which Windish Agency who uh, recently did an M&A with Paradigm uh, along with AM Only. So today he's one of the top senior executives at the new Para Paradigm group. Um, so yeah, hey Tom, thanks for doing this. Hello. Uh, I wanted to just kind of get into it. Um, uh, as a live industry executive, do you actually remember your first show? My first show was uh, one, Huey Lewis. Yeah, not the one that you put on, but the one that you attended as a normal Yeah, customer. yeah, no. It was, it was Huey Lewis in the news. Uh, I don't know if you know what that is in, in France, but uh, um, yeah, uh, I think I was like 14 or something. He had this album called Sports. It was a big, big soundtrack with uh, Back to the Future movie. And I went and uh, went with my dad. Uh, I remember seeing like my my friends from school there and they all thought I was lame because I was there with my dad. Um, and I really, ironically, strangely, um, it turns out that, that, that show was booked by a man who's now uh, one of my business partners at paradigm <laughs> and paradigm still books Huey Lewis. That, that, yeah, that's coming full circle. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was my first There were There were, you know, there were a bunch of other ones early on. Uh, U2 uh, was a big one. You know, that was in a football stadium even when I was uh, a teenager. Um, I, I lived in upstate New York, um, so there wasn't like like the small club kind of uh, shows really that, that I could go to or that there weren't really many of those. I don't think there really was a club that was all ages. Um, um, when I was a little bit older in high school, I think my senior year, um, I went and saw this band called Kemper Van Beethoven, um, that I was really obsessed with when I was in uh, high school. Um, and then when I, uh, yeah, I, I, I listened to a lot of music in, in high school I had this lawn mowing business. Um, and the whole time I was mowing lawns, I was listening to music. Um, so I started sort of digging deep with music at a pretty young age, um, kind of out of boredom. Um, and I would go to the record store with my, my lawn mowing money and buy, buy a few records each week, basically, uh, and then play them all week and go get more. Um, when I got to college, I, um, I decided to join the radio station. Um, and I just decided to do that, like, because a friend suggested it, uh, I wasn't like really, I didn't have this like strong, inclination to do it or something. But as soon as, um, I, I did join, um, uh, like I, I was kind of became the thing I was most excited about, most obsessed with. Uh, and I would do like any radio, any slot that was open, you know, the four to 7 AM in the morning, um, or the, the Sunday, Sunday morning at 8 AM or whatever, uh, I would do anything just so I could like get on the air and, and I would spend a lot of time in the record libraries playing lots and lots of different types of music um, beyond just uh, like back then it was called alternative music uh, or like what now I guess you'd call indie rock. Beyond just that, I would play all sorts of experimental stuff and jazz and um, new age and, and rock and classic stuff. And 
um, I just kind of dug deep. Uh, and then I had all these friends that would, you know, kind of were doing the same thing and would constantly say, have you heard this? Have you heard that? Uh, you got to play this. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And when I was a freshman, I fell into putting on, um, my first show, um, which was like on the last day of class through the, um, through the radio station. Um, a friend of mine, like that was his job that was to put on this show for the station. And he decided to drop out of school. So he taught me how to, um, how to do it. Uh, everything was sort of set up. Um, and he also taught me like how to book a band for the next, uh, semester. And I ended up, uh, booking a couple bands for the next, that, that first band, by the way, was called the feelies, uh, who I still really like love. Um, and the following semester, uh, I booked a couple things and in this, in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, this guy came to me, uh, and he said, uh, you know, I'm the, the campus activities director. My, and one of my jobs is to uh, appoint the person in charge of all the, the campus concerts, all the, all the concerts. And the only ones I'm excited about seeing are the ones that you booked on the last day of class and this coming fall. So would you like to be in charge of the whole thing? And, uh, and I, and I, you know, I, I, I was very excited, you know, said yes. And, just kind of jumped into booking a ton of bands, um, Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr., Cypress Hill, um, and loads and loads of other bands. Um, and I loved it. And I, I, I got to know booking agents. I ended up getting a, an internship at William Morris Agency in New York. Um, and I quickly discovered uh, that I want to be an agent. Um, I really loved the role that they played, um, the closeness to the artist, but not too close. Um, and I loved, you know, I love shows, uh, and like the feeling you get when you're at a concert and it's, uh, it's such a unique thing that, you know, you, you can only get that one time when you're there. Um, and, uh, yeah, after the, the internship, I like, I just started booking tours for bands, um, right away. Um, the, my first agency was called bug booking. I was still in college. Um, I kind of dropped out of college a couple of times and went back, uh, and never, you, you actually, up. you actually built it from the ground up. It was, it was called bug booking. Yeah. Did you remember yeah. why you named it bug? I named it bug because, uh, I mean, the only bands that would work with me were the bands that no other agents wanted to book because I was like the newest agent in the country and no one really knew, knew me. And I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, as, as well as anybody else who was doing it. because I was so new. Um, and I had my own company, you know, so it was just me. Um, and I had to bug people so much to book the bands. Uh, so I called it bug. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it went well. One of my, one of my first bands was called low, uh, who I still book. Um, I absolutely love that band. Um, another band was called hum, um, who ended up selling uh, almost a million records. Um, and also, you know, they both stayed, stayed with me when they got bigger and everything. Um, yeah, I have a funny story about the band Hum. Um, when they, I booked them in my college, they were the opening act for another band. Uh, I didn't know them. They, they just, the, the agent was like, oh, you have to pay this opening act like a hundred bucks. Um, and I said, sure, cool. No big deal. And they were playing at this place on campus called the campus pub. Um, and I get this, uh, like, uh, letter in the mail 
uh, with a, on a piece of notebook paper, handwritten, it says hum rider. Uh, and, and they write on it, uh, two pizzas, two cases of beer. Um, so they show up and they were playing at this campus pub and the only thing they sold at this place was beer and pizza. Uh, so I said, you can have as much as you want. <laughs> uh, and like a year later, I, a year or two later when I was booking, uh, when I was an agent, I, I heard they were looking for an agent and I called them up and, and they said, well, you're the only person who got us both the pizza and the beer. Uh, so let's do it. <laughs> and then they became very popular. Um, yeah, I'm still friends with them to this day. Um, so, so just, yeah, if, if we if we backtrack a little bit, I I had no idea about this lawn lawn mowing business when you were a kid, and then I knew that you launched Bug. Um, so would you say for for Bug maybe it's different, but um, like would you would you consider yourself a, like a entrepreneur spirit person? Uh, did you do things because you just like bug booking? You just couldn't get like a top agent job in a major company, so like fuck it, let's just start it. Um, or is it something that you've always wanted to start something of your own? Because uh, most agents actually start at big agency. You're like a booking coordinator. Uh, you understand a bit how the big machine works, and then you get your first act within that big thing. You actually took a completely different route, which is starting a very, very small agency, and then actually you move through billions um, after bug booking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I do. I think there's lots of different uh, types of entrepreneurialism, uh, and I, I do think I have uh, some sort of. Uh, you know, um, desire to build things, um, and to do a good job and, and, and all that. Um, and there are similarities between the, 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 the lawn mowing thing and, and then bug booking. Um, I was, you know, pretty obsessed with, with both of them, uh, and doing a great job and, and, and just finding more stuff, more great things to do. Um, so yeah, I do think I have an entrepreneurial bug. Um, at that time, it was a little bit different. Um, I could have gone to work at a big agency, I guess, um, but there were there were a, a good number of independent booking agencies. Um, these days, there really aren't very many. Um, that most, a lot of them have been acquired by larger companies. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, I took like the path I took, which today sounds like it was uh, a bit unique or left field, but at that time it wasn't that uncommon. Uh, it really never even crossed my mind to go work for a big agency, to be honest. And I, I imagine I, they would have said no thanks if I had even tried. Um, yeah. And so then at this point, after like from Vogue, you're you're in, um, uh, you then move to Billions. Um, which is still operating today, and there's like <coughs> bands like Arcade Fire and, 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 and others. Um, can you tell me about that move and then the seven-year experience, which was, I guess, your first agent job at a larger firm? How is that different yeah. from Bug? What was the, the positive and learning experience? Um, and then maybe segue, what made you start Windish after? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this was a long time ago. So at Bug, um, like, we would... I would print out the contracts on a dot matrix printer, the kind that makes a noise when it's printing, you know, like, eh, eh, and I would print out like 25 of them uh, a day or something. Uh, and I would hand write out the envelopes uh, of where to mail these contracts or where to mail tapes um, for people to listen to. Um, and 
uh, I was living in upstate New York at the time when I, when I started Bug, um, basically live, living in my parents' house. Um, and I moved to Chicago. Um, I got a deal on rent there for $100 a month. I lived above this really classic rock club called Lounge Axe. Um, it was sort of the CBGBs of, uh, of Chicago. And at the time, um, the, the music scene in Chicago was amazing. There were all these independent labels and bands. There was a label called Touch and Go and Drag City and Thrill Jockey. And uh, Liz Fair was uh, coming up then and Smashing Pumpkins. And there's a whole industrial scene. Um, and it's a really exciting place to be. And I had this deal on rent, so I moved there. Um, and I started, you know, basically bug Chicago, um, above this rock club and in, in very raw, um, um, accommodations, but I loved it. I, I never even thought like this is weird or, uh, uncomfortable or it's hard to sleep at night. Uh, never really crossed my mind. And then about six months later, I got a, um, a call from the guy who owns uh, billions botch and asked if I would be interested in talking to him about working there. And, and at that time, like that was like the best thing that ever could have happened to me, um, in my head, uh, and both and professionally too. But like, I loved, uh, billions. They had pavement and the John Spencer blues explosion and, uh, a lot of my favorite bands and it was just a dream come true. Um, and you know, one of the big benefits of, uh, billions was that I got to learn, um, about kind of like plug in holes of things I had never learned, uh, on my own. Uh, that could mean like, uh, Oh, there's a great promoter in this place in Texas, you know, and you should know him or her, you know, and they'll help you book shows that maybe that was a city that I was like skipping because <laughs> I just didn't know, uh, or the person wouldn't call me back or something. Um, and then he also, uh, introduced me to some label people, some managers, um, and just gave me like a, a, a bit of professionalism that, that I was lacking on my own and, and a little bit of infrastructure. Um, so yeah, I worked there for about seven years. Um, and I started with rock bands, um, and my musical palette sort of, uh, uh, grew while I was there and I started getting into electronic music. Um, and for the first boy, like year and a half or something, I, I had decided I, I really like, uh, certain types of electronic music back then we called it IDM. Um, it was before EDM, uh, and it was like these people, the I was for international, international dance music or Inte intelligent, intelligent Inte dance music. Yeah. Yeah. And it was basically like these music that people were making on their computers that would like lots of bleeps. Um, there was even like, like a series called bleep and stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of the rock people said, this is not music. Uh, they're not doing anything. Um, I remember the first Coachella I went to, um, I went to take my friend to see Autechre. This is before I was booking them. And I said, oh, there they are. This is amazing. And they were on the stage doing, you know, doing this, playing their music. And he said, where? There's, <laughs> there's no one, there's nothing going on up there. And there, you know, there's these two guys leaned over their laptops and I was like, that's them. That's it. He's like, when did it start? <laughs> like, um, and the people at Billions didn't like the music that I was uh, uh, booking, playing in the office. Um, um, 
they didn't really, they didn't go to the shows. Uh, they didn't, they put me in this like separate office so I could play the music. <laughs> um, That's usually how the first the first dance departments at record labels is usually one guy in an office listening to weird music, and then yeah. and then the thing grows, yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know they didn't go to the shows that I was booking, and 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 my business like my personal roster grew a lot the first year or so. Every artist I went after um, to to book them, they all said no. Um, because I didn't have like one artist that was in that world that could say he does a good job. Um, and there was this other guy, um, who had his own agency and he had like all of the artists I liked would go to him. Um, but then one day I got a call from, uh, Astroworks. Um, and they said, are you still interested in booking that artist that, uh, that you wanted to book like a year ago or something? And I was like, absolutely. You know what, what's up? And they're like, well, that other guy, Um, he just didn't book the tour. Uh, so we're upset and, and we, we want to give you a shot. So I booked the tour in like two weeks or something. I was like over the moon and it was a great tour. It was this artist named music. Um, and, uh, another artist named Luke Vibert opened, um, <clears throat> and the shows all sold out and, and, uh, I approached it with a level of, uh, Um, professionalism that was more common with like the more the rock rock um, booking than electronic had at that time and they really liked that and the word kind of started to spread that uh, this this guy's uh, do, you know good really good at booking tours so then I got a call from the guy the the owner of warp records which is a really influential electronic label at the time and he asked if I wanted to book a tour for Autecker which I was again like floored and over the moon about. And, and then that led to square pusher and Luke Vibert and then Ninja tune, um, called and asked if I wanted to book a tour for cold cut who were the founders of Ninja tune. And that led to Amon Tobin and the cinematic orchestra and, um, uh, kid koala and, and more. And it just continued to spread from there. Um, I ended up signing an artist named Saint Germain, Saint Germain, um, who becoming like the biggest artist uh, I'd ever booked. Um, they had some huge songs, uh, and things just continued to grow. Um, but I continued to feel like isolated, maybe more and more, like on an island at Billions. Um, and I thought, you know, if I if I took the The, the revenue that was coming in uh, that was going straight to the agency and used it and spent it on people um, to support these artists that I'd actually be able to provide a better service for them. Um, so I thought about it for like a long time, like three years and I was afraid uh, to do anything um, and really uncertain. And then it just became more and more clear that it was something I needed to do. Uh, and then finally I did it and I started the windish agency in my apartment. Um, uh, and it, and I had one employee and we sort of hit the ground running. Um, we put up the one page website. Um, this was like the internet wasn't a big thing at the time. Um, but we had our one page website with our roster. Um, and soon we, we were, we needed a, another person. Um, and then another, and it just grew and grew. Um, and we finally moved out of my apartment and into an office. 
um, I uh, found um, I found an employee uh, named Sam Hunt uh, very early on. I think he was the third employee, um, um, and he ended up being uh, like a really great addition to the company. Um, started out kind of doing whatever I asked him to do, answered the phones and, and chased the contracts and, and anything, um, and ended up, uh, booking tours and then eventually signing artists. Um, and he, his, the first artist I think he, that he signed was uh, girl talk, um, who ended up being uh, really, really popular and influential. Um, because I had this relationship with Ninja tune, I had, um, Diplo on the roster. I think at the time he was called Hollertronics and I didn't really know what to do with it. There wasn't too much going on. Um, and I, I asked Sam if he could just like take care of it. And he kind of like took the ball and ran with that too. Um, that did great. Um, so Sam became, you know, like a really huge part of the company. And then we hired, uh, another guy named Brad Owen, um, who was, a uh, booking an a nightclub in Chicago, um, forever. And, you know, we were kind of like, do you, do, would you rather, um, work from like nine to five <laughs> instead of, uh, from five to 3 AM every night? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I remember he was really unsure and then finally, uh, he decided to come over. Um, and he also did really well, um, quite fast. Um, and the company grew, just kept growing. Do you think the, I, so I didn't know, but out of the seven years at Billions, basically after four, you were already kind of projecting the Windish. Do you think that Windish um, kind of took momentum very quickly because you gave it so much thought before you left? Do you think it was kind of, um, there is always a sense of right spot, right time, right music, uh, you had the good ears a little bit anticipated like before everybody else in the market, but do you think the time to prepare the, the time to prepare the three years of actually thinking about what would it be to start again another agency but maybe on another scale that that bug helped, or would you have started three years earlier and it would have been the same? Um, you know, I mean, it was a combination of all those factors for sure, but I, I think. Um, the time that I spent, uh, thinking about it was the least, um, important. Uh, I think that we, you know, we worked really hard, uh, and we were always thinking like, how can we do this better and implementing things to, to, to do things better for sure. Um, and we, you know, we, our approach to what we signed, I think was different than a lot of our competitors. Uh, I think we were signing a lot of stuff that they, they just weren't familiar with um, and that was new. Um, but but the other thing was that we, when it, when it really started to take off, it was also this moment in, in time in the music industry that was extremely advantageous to the types of artists that we were booking. So basically Napster happened um, a few years after the Windish Agency started, maybe like three or four years or something. And Napster was an incredible thing for the artists that we booked um, because the artists we booked were pretty hard to discover. Um, a, a lot of them, like you couldn't buy the records in the United States. You had to order them from like other music or, you know, you, not even from the internet really, like, like from the record store and it would called an import. You go and order it 
it was really expensive and then it would take like six weeks to arrive and you'd hear about these things not through rolling stone or some website but through like fanzines you know and fanzine was like printed out on a photocopier and stapled together by a person who would say this is great music you know uh, and then mail them to their friends um that was the way it was before um very underground and then the internet came along and all of a sudden you know our artists who we really loved and thought were fantastic um their music was available for free on the internet so everyone could go download it and then tell their friends i heard this amazing record um go on the napster and get it and almost almost immediately more people were buying tickets to see the shows um uh so yeah we benefited greatly from that um, didn't plan it, obviously, um, didn't even really realize it was happening while it was happening. Um, I mean, it was only to, like several years after, like really several years after that, we would sort of realized that that was good. And now, you know, 15, 20 years later, whatever it is, um, it's totally obvious. But at the time we were just kind of riding, um, a wave, um, and there were, you know, there were more and more artists that were doing well. And that wave sort of evolved um, so that someone like Diplo, who originally was quite underground and hard to find, um, you know, ultimately became what he is. Um, and that happened with a bunch of the artists uh, that we work with, where they, they broke out of the underground into the mainstream. And I think that um, the ease of discovering them and listening to them um, was a part of why that, why they did get to, you know, why they got to become as big as they are. Um, I think a lot of the artists that we booked in the old days um, who were amazing, um, like they didn't get their fair shake. They never, you know, got like uh, in the spotlight um, because people just didn't know who they were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've said it's been an incredible time in music basically ever since Napster, uh, definitely since Spotify, because uh, then it sort of went from, it was like legitimate, it was legal, uh, it didn't feel weird, um, you know, and like you're doing something wrong, which I'm sure affected a lot of, a lot of people. And now, you know, everything is on, on the internet, uh, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I think... Everybody kind of saw Napster and the, the whole P2P as a great way for music discovery and a very positive way of, for unknown artists to find their first audience. But it's just a part of the industry. We're just so scared of losing revenue um, that the discovery part made uh, didn't make business sense for them. For people like you, uh, you didn't lose on record sales. So it was just this bonus of discovery that, that would come. Um, yeah, I guess today with Spotify, um, it's, it's both discovery and revenue, at least for the record uh, labels and, 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 and managers. And so they, they see it as positively as what some agents would have seen it before. Uh, so we'll come back. I mean, to I, like I, I was sitting there that whole time and what, that, that there was all this press about how, um, how terrible things were and how the labels were falling apart. Um, and this was go, this would go on for many years. Uh, I was constantly reading about it. Um, and I was sitting there, um, thinking, more people are going to see the artists I'm booking. Uh, we're doing better. We're getting bigger. We're selling more tickets, making more money. Um, feels good. <laughs> uh, no one really asked us, like, how are things for you? Uh, it was kind of a side thing. 
it was a record dominated market. And so when, when people were saying the music industry is going down, it was automatically associated with the record labels. Um, eventually, actually, some paper came out by saying, um, you know, the live industry is booming. And so now artists must look at live industry revenue for revenue and must see the record almost as a promotional tool for the live. And I guess now it's more of a even thing where obviously people are making money again from the from the record side. Uh, we'll come back to tech in a little while, but the, so the windish story at this point is in Chicago, it's staffing up, it's going, uh, it's going fast. From this, you move the company to LA and then obviously grow it again. And then there is the M&A with Paradigm. Uh, what made you move to LA from, from Chicago? You were from, well, from the East Coast originally. Before, before we opened in LA, um, we opened a New York office. Uh, our first, our, our first office there was, uh, like basically one agent, um, who'd been with another agency for a long time and then finally decided to, to join us. Um, his name is Steve Goodgold he's still, still works at Paradigm. Great, great agent, great guy. Um, and the first like two years that we had this New York office, um, it was in the basement of his, uh, townhouse in New Jersey, um, and he would go into the city uh, a bunch of days of the week to meet people, you know, but mostly with like work down there and just do, do his agent job. Uh, and then ultimately we opened a, a small office in New York and that grew. Uh, and I'm not sure how many years um, we had that before we opened LA. Um, but it was, you know, a, a number of years. And I started spending the winters in LA um, because the weather in Chicago is not good in, in the, in the, the winter. Um, and I didn't really know much about LA to be honest. Um, I had not spent much time there at all. Um, I, and I thought, well, I can escape the cold. Um, and also I can go meet people, um, that have been, that are kind of hard to pin down when you go, when you go to LA on a trip for three or four days. Um, so I did that for one month, the first year, second year, I did it for two months. The third year, I did it for three months, um, and then uh, I think it was the end of the third year. I decided I'm just going to stay here. Um, I bought a house, I lived in it, and that was the office. Uh, and then later, one agent came came down and worked there with me. I was still living in the house, and then we started adding uh, more employees to that office uh, and all the other offices as basically as like the work demanded. So you were living so, at the you were living at the LA office, and the New York guy was living in the New Jersey office. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. very, very organic. Um, looking back on it all, it seems funny um, and ragtag, um, but at the time, it just felt like the the right thing to do and the way we're going to do it, or something. Organic um, growing a business, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never had. Uh, never really had very fancy offices until, until I wouldn't say they were fancy even at the end, but uh, until much later, um, and we had cool offices. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, the last one I went to before the merger with Paradigm, the, the Windish office uh, next to Silver Lake, I guess. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that was a nice one. Uh, but nothing yeah. fancy, but like just a nice music looking place. Um, yeah, totally. Fast forwarded today, what, uh, so for people who don't know, Paradigm existed before the merger with Windish, <laughs> AM only as well was a pretty large agency in the US. Um, the three companies are now merged into one. You guys are also partners with Coda in the UK. Uh, just for people who don't know, could you 
explain a little bit what is Paradigm today and how you guys operate? So th there's even more than that. Um, um, but I think about 15 years ago, they, they were a film TV agency in, in Beverly Hills in LA. Um, I'm not sure when they started, a long time ago, 20, 20 years ago or something. Um, and about 13 years ago, I think something around that they acquired an agency called Monterey Peninsula artists. Um, it was, it had similar DNA to ours, um, to windish agency, I'd say in, in, in different ways, but it was these two guys who had been at a major agency in LA who decided we're leaving, we're moving to Monterey, California. Um, and we're going to start our, our company. Um, and everyone thought they were nuts. Uh, they went up there and, and basically became the best independent agency in the business. Uh, and Monterey, and I, for I, the I, people who don't know, Monterey is like a couple hours north from LA. It's a little, uh, town facing the ocean, famous for like the fog and the views and yeah. stuff. It's not at all a music place or a large, uh, yeah. large city for at all. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think it's five hours north of LA. Um, not to, just a couple and it, yeah, it's very remote. It's like two or three hours South of San Francisco. It's not really like a venue that bands play at regularly. Um, so yeah, very remote. And they just decided we're going to move there. It's a, a beautiful place. Um, but you know, they kind of started their company from the ground up in, with, in some similarities to the way we did. Um, and, and they became, a great independent agency that was then acquired by Paradigm. Um, then uh, Paradigm acquired another agency in New York called Little Big Man, which was started by uh, this agent, Marty Diamond, um, who, again, like started it in somewhat similar ways where it was in his apartment. Uh, it was just him and a few people. And he would sign all these bands uh, when people didn't know who they were. You know, uh, he's on Coldplay and Ed Sheeran and, and loads and loads of other artists. Uh, and he grew that company to the best uh, independent agency or one of the best independent agencies. Uh, and then that was acquired by Paradigm. Um, with both of them, they, 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 when they acquired it, they would always kind of do uh, like a merger first, like a, a smaller thing. And it would be Little Big Man in association with Paradigm. Monterey Peninsula in association with Paradigm. And, and for many years, they would like work together and do more and more and more stuff together. And then change the name, uh, kind of like when the whole world was like, well, I was wondering when that was going to happen. <laughs> um, then they went into a partnership with AM Only, uh, which is like the, one of the best DJ agencies in the United States, probably the best. Um, uh, again, started very similar routes by Uh, the main guy, Paul Morris, uh, in the back of a record shop booking Tiesto with one employee. That employee was also a DJ client of the agency, and that agency became a huge, fantastic company. Um, and then they started doing some things in the UK. They did a partnership with Coda Agency, another like very, you know, very, very strong independent, um, started from the ground up as well. Um, they've also done a deal with, uh, x-ray touring in the uk um then they did a deal with us where it was windish in association with paradigm um and slowly they 
over time, uh, they would fold in the those companies entirely. So, you know, Monterey and Little Big Man just became Paradigm, and slowly that happened with the other ones, not not Coda or X-Ray. Um, they've also they acquired a, I think a Roots Blues agency in Chicago named Monterey International, um, who's now called Paradigm. Um, they acquired a country agency in Nashville. Um, so there's there's been a lot of acquisitions of independent agencies and, and I'd say, I'd really say all, all of the, the people who founded those agencies shared, um, share, uh, similarities to what I had at Windish and, and, and the people that came in early, um, at Windish and, um, you know, at, at one time they were all sort of like, an underdog or, you know, outside of the big company thing, uh, which I think sort of drives, drives a certain, uh, um, culture, uh, within the company. Um, so yeah, so yeah, Windish changed its name to Paradigm four years ago, I think three or three or four years ago. Um, and it's just been off to the races. I, I decided to, that I needed to join a bigger agency, many years ago because we had these artists that were getting to kind of superstar level uh, and the demands, the things that they required from an agency were evolving. Um, when I started, it was just booking, you know, and, and um, as time passed, uh, it became more and more about more services, um, brand partnerships, uh, being able to help with uh, content like, like film or video Um um, and then also global. So a lot of artists want to be booked by one company for the world. Uh, and Windish shared about 150 artists with Coda before we had anything to do with them officially. Um, so they were very much like a natural partner of ours. We also had some artists with X-Ray. So it's nice to be able to offer a worldwide service. Um, we don't really demand it. Um, or push it if it doesn't make sense. Um, but some, sometimes it does. And we, you know, we, I think we share 400 artists with Coda, something like that. Um, and it's, uh, I'd say it's a little bit easier to develop the artist, um, internationally, globally, um, when like it's one agency for the world. Uh, and these days the way artists are developing, uh, in general is internationally first. Um, because of the way streaming exists, uh, the people who are streaming, lots of artists that I see live in London, LA, New York, Sydney, um, and a few, you know, a few other places. Um, but it's not limited to like one country, um, nearly as often as it used to be. Um, so having like an international partner makes things a lot easier. You know, we might be talking about when we're going to do New York and, London on the, fir the first phone call. Um, and that's very different than the way it was like 10 or 15 years ago. Back then you would develop in like one part of one country, you know, and then ultimately develop that country and then spread out from there. Um, yeah, just the way, the way music travels extremely fast today, except if you're doing a, um, a Franco, like if you sing in French or you sing in German or some some non-English uh, language. But if you sing in English, you're from Australia, the U.S. and London, uh, or the U.K. Uh, or Canada. You, you like you think of those markets as your domestic live markets. Um, 
the 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 media the, even the web media are not really local based there are still like line of best fit from the uk but the biggest online media i just have international clout and uh, an english reader australian reader us reader is going to read the same blog reviews people are going to listen to the same playlist uh, spotify's rap caviar or mint because you were speaking about electronic is not only listened to by us people um like Hot 97 for hip hop in New York is literally just listened to 95% by people in New York State. Uh, the Rap Caviar, which is the Hot 97 of of playlist, I would say, it's probably 50% non-American, um, and that's a huge uh, shift. So great segue. Um, um, you actually started to talk about tech, so I guess we can just kind of wrap up the interview on that. Um, a lot of people assume technical changes have affected the recording industry a lot more than the live industry. We're talking about streaming. We're talking about uh, artist-fan interactions. But I know in the in the world of, of like the live industry, it's actually very very true. Uh, we could talk about uh, scalpers uh, and uh, like digital tickets and using blockchain and stuff to track tickets and, and avoid scalping. We could talk about, of course, CRM and how artists can put shows on sales directly with fans now, with pre-sales with the platforms and so forth. There is the obvious Fortnite marshmallow digitalization of events that is a huge hot topic so would you say that tech has impacted the live and then maybe obviously because it has uh what is the, like the number one thing you guys are thinking about uh, positive challenges and positive things to do or actually maybe things that you're kind of looking with a uh, an eye like mm, that could actually hurt our business a little bit um i mean i guess like the holy grail with tech and touring would be to figure out what size venues uh, the artists could play when they do the shows and, and how much you could charge for the ticket price. Um, the reality with that uh, is that tours, there's not enough venues in the world right now um, to service like the number of artists that can fill them. I, I'd say there's been a, like a, a democratization uh, shift uh, where there's a lot of artists that can sell, 300 tickets, 500 tickets, 1,000 tickets, uh, 2,000 tickets, a lot more than there used to be. Um, and, and But there's not that many more venues than there were 20 years ago. Um, bands play this, the same places. you know. And I, I know there's some exceptions, but in general, um, there's not that many more places. And, and one of the repercussions of that is that the venues get booked up really, really, really far in advance. Um, nine months, 10 months, um, and the music, I have no idea how it's going to be received for a show that's nine or 10 months in advance. Often the music's not even out yet. Um, so there's still a lot of sort of gut instinct going on, um, um, more than I'd, I'd like, you know, um, and maybe someone will figure it out someday. I, I don't know. Um, the, you know, the way things have the way tech has influenced it are, I mean, the big one is, uh, through Spotify and, and, and the ease of uploading music to the internet. Um, before there were these gatekeepers that had like very solid, strong, high gates. <laughs> um, cause without them, uh, you, if you didn't have the money to print like a vinyl or CD or something, um, uh, you, you couldn't put it out. And then you also if you could, if you could afford that, you couldn't distribute it. Uh, you know, it wasn't in shops, uh, and, and you needed money to, 
get in the press and stuff and, and to have people know who you were and then to get on the radio and, and that's all completely changed. Um, you can now put up your music and if people like it, they can click a button and tell all their friends on all their social networks immediately that they like it and they should listen to it. And those people can click that, that, uh, that thing and, and listen to it. Uh, and then it can just feed itself very quickly. And that happens all the time. And I, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I mean, another, th- another way tech has influenced it is that you can make a really good sounding record on your laptop. Um, you don't need to go into an expensive, fancy studio um, to make a record. You do it in your bedroom or um, with uh, a limited amount of like uh, recording equipment tied up, hooked up to your laptop. And again, you hit the button and it's, you can put it on the internet for everyone to hear it. Um, and I think that's, that's a wonderful thing. Um, you know, stuff like, <clears throat> like you were saying, being able to sell tickets directly to the fans, I think is a fantastic thing. It's uncommon in the, in the United States because of the way businesses are set up and the, the, the rules and regulations that we do and don't have. Um, I wish that when I put a show on sale, I could tell how many people want to buy a ticket um, and then just sell it to them. You know, instead, of selling tickets that we had 20 years ago where it was, uh, hey, shows tickets for this show are going to go on sale on Friday at 10 a.m. And that's just so ridiculous and outdated. You know, like most people I know want to buy a ticket are, they're in school. Yeah, or they're working they busy. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they have at work. And then the ones who do get to go and try that, like they go and it, there's no tickets available. They've already been sold and bought up by the scalpers and the bots and all this stuff. Um, and that, that's been evolving, but, uh, you know, to me, not nearly fast enough. Um, it's uh, funny because the way, the way you say it, it, it's a double thing. It's either you're putting a show on sale and you're actually selling it out much quicker than you anticipated, but maybe the band doesn't even have a second day in the market. So you ended up selling 2K where you could have sold uh, like 5K. The other thing is sometimes you overestimate demand and you end up with an empty venue because it's very hard 10 months in advance. And then the third um, challenge is sometimes you actually have the right venue for the right band, but the day you put it on sale, bots buy it. And so the real fans are kind of locked out and they have to go to uh, bad websites to uh, get overcharged for it. And getting the right ticket in the hands of the right fans um, at, the, at the right time, estimating the venue, all of these are still up in the air. And yeah, tech hasn't really solved that at all. Um, it, there is a couple of shows I've seen in Europe where the band is trying to gauge how much they're going to sell. So they do like a pre-sale for fans, but they don't announce the venue. And so that allows them to say, well, if fans are going to buy 10% of a venue on like the first 48 hours, let's just put it on sale and say we play in London on April 17th. If you're a fan, you don't really care where they're going to play. You just want to see them. And then depending on how that pre-buy goes, you choose the venue accordingly. But you need to control your ticketing. You need to control your inventory. You need to be able to put tickets on sale outside of digital platforms, like ticketing platforms. And once you have that quota, have to work with them to like put it back in the system so they can get scanned at the entrance. That's a big, big technical challenge. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time, and I know you actually had to leave three minutes ago. Uh, quick, quick, uh, last two uh, questions before we go. 
The first one is a little bit long, depending on how you want to take it. Second one is very short. First one is, if you had to meet the 19-year-old uh, Tom, what would you say? Uh, is there any words of wisdom that you felt you would have uh, needed or lacked uh, between like nine, like when you started this thing? Uh, what would you say the 19-year-old Tom? Mm. I mean, seeking out mentors um, would be a great thing for a 19-year-old to do. Um, I, I've sort of gotten to where I've gotten by hustling also. Um, but also, you know, asking people for help or for their advice or opinion on how they would do things, um, as it relates to, you know, like just situations that my clients are in, uh, what venue or, or whatever. Um, uh, there's so much material you can read and listen to on the internet. Um, I still read and listen to tons and tons and tons of stuff. Um, when I was 19, that barely existed. Um, and you can learn so much, um, about how people have, um, done things. Um, and I would recommend doing that. <laughs> um, I still, I, I enjoy it. That's why I, I do it. Um, and I love hearing people's stories both in music and, and in other areas. Um, uh, I also think, I mean, if you wanted to get in, into music specifically, um, obviously, like, consume tons of music. Go to tons of shows, big ones, small ones. Um, I never went on tour with a band, but if you wanted to be an agent, I'd recommend doing that. Um, and beyond things that are related to just music, um, I mean, and this kind of goes along with what I was saying before, the, what, what a... The demands of an agent now are so much different than they were, uh, or it's not just about touring. So I would really recommend that 19-year-olds sort of um, soak up life and go and, and do and see and talk to as many people as you possibly can in all areas. Uh, and that will influence and, and, um, and help you immensely uh, in, if you're doing like a narrower scope later on. Um, go see art read literature, um, listen to politics, you know, read the newspaper, travel the world, um, go meet people like all over the place. Now, obviously like how you pay for all this, like, I don't know. Um, but I, I think you can, um, for some people there, you know, it, it, the, the hurdles are not that high. It can be done. Um, you know, I, I had like a band from Japan, um, who had a tour making $500 a night opening for, um, someone and it was a great opportunity and they, they really didn't have much money. Um, and they figured out, they did this tour, it was like 30 shows or something and they lost like $2,000 doing it, which is not a lot, um, in the grand scheme of things. They bought a van at the beginning of the tour and they sold it at the end for just a little bit less than they paid for it. And they did a lot of other things that were, um, crafty and probably very uncomfortable um but they're frugal and uh you know i have other bands who've been in the same situation get offered a tour for five hundred dollars a night and they spend forty fifty thousand dollars uh doing that you know i'd encourage like our you know they're not really making making much money um and i i guess i'd encourage like you know the 19 year olds uh, who are not 
musicians, but are looking to get into the business to sort of approach life the same way, uh, frugally <laughs> and do as much as possible. Um, cause it's the more experiences you have, uh, and the broader your palette, um, the, just the better off you're going to be. And, and the more, uh, the more well-rounded your advice and approach to things is going to be, um, you know, with, with like shows, uh, maybe the artist should, maybe the musician should play at like an art gallery for the first show or something, uh, or, uh, a museum or some park or something. And if you're just thinking about, oh, everybody plays at the Scala in, in London, the third time they play LA, I mean, uh, London, um, you know, you, you need to think out beyond what people have been doing for the last, uh, 10 to 20 years, you know, um, that will make you like a more valuable member of a team. We always see the same, uh, the same shows, the same marketing, like stunts or plots, the same like on sale, pre-sale, announced kind of strategies. And then every once in a while, some artist just does the complete opposite than everybody else. And usually they're, they're the ones that, that, uh, that get most attention, regardless of the music. Um, every, every year there's one artist that just takes everybody else um, uh, like it's a counterintuitive marketing um, a plot or live set or the way that just the stage is set up. Uh, I saw a show recently where the artist is in the center and everybody is kind of participating around. And you can see that artist 20 times the day you see this one, it's completely refreshed. Um, actually, so Fortet in L.A., which is one of, of the artists of um, that is uh, that is going through you guys, and he had this like center stage with neons all around. And I guess most people who go see Fortet today have probably seen Fortet once. He has such a big fan base that people just keep going. And that felt like the like the first show I ever been to, and it's definitely not the first show I've been to. Um, so yeah, keep reinventing yourself as well. Uh, cool. Before I let you go, do you have a new music? It could be like post podcast or book and stuff. But do you have like a new music or podcast or book recommendation? Mm -hmm. Man, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, too much to music. I'm, a, I'm obsessed with a lot of a lot of music. Uh, I'm reading this book right now called Normal People that I heard about from Daniel Glass that I really like. It's written by an Irish author. It's just a good read, hard to put down. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, so I don't know if I'll like the ending or not. But uh, um, I listened to a bunch of Freakonomics uh, episodes of podcasts last night when I was driving back from Coachella. Um, and it was all about the creative process. Um, uh, I think it's an incredible time in the world today. Uh, there's so much great art, um, and, and messages being spread. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to just be in a position where I can help people, um, um, just have a louder voice. Um, I'm finding music from all over the place and, Lots of other people are finding it too and are buying tickets to see it and are supporting them. And these people are putting on incredible shows and participating in festivals and all sorts of things. And I love hearing music that, um, that no one's ever conceived of, uh, those notes and melodies and, and, uh, uh, the type of voice like being combined. Um, and there's just more of bizarre and amazing stuff happening than ever. Than ever. And then when you hear it, it just sounds like, the most obvious, greatest thing. Um, I, I love that. And man, like, like Krungbin, uh, I love that band and they're really, really popular. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, no one ever would have said that band's going to be huge. Um, 
I, one of the things that excites me most is is seeing bands that 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 to the traditional music industry um, would have always said that a band will never be huge. Seeing them be huge, um, like we're bound by these rules that um, and norms and notions that uh, like really don't have much basis in reality. <laughs> um, and I love helping to break those rules and norms and show um, the world that they're wrong. Um, I've been booking French hip hop artists in America um, with great success. And it's not just French people going to these shows. Thousands of people turn up um, without the support of record companies. Uh, I think that's awesome. Uh, I've been booking artists from Africa. Um, I've been booking like like neoclassical artists. Um, with all of them, like the music blows me away, blows my mind. Um, and it's wonderful that lots and lots of people um, are experiencing, you know, feeling the same thing I am. Because in the old days, like people wouldn't have bought tickets to see them. Um, they wouldn't have bought their records either. Um, and you know, now we're in an ecosystem where that, that, that it's, it's thriving to do what you want to do or what feels natural, uh, what feels right, what's, what feels you. Uh, and I encourage people to, you know, spend as time for artists to spend time figuring that out and not comparing themselves to others and saying, uh, you know, Oh, if we just got this festival or this brand partnership, we would be popular. I, I don't think there's, any truth to that? Uh, I think if uh, if you write music that uh, that you love, um, that's how you have the highest chance of success of being discovered. Uh, if you're like truly authentic, if you are vulnerable, um, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing.